the bells of san juan by jackson gregory chapter twenty one a crisis like norton virginia found life simplifying itself in a crisis upon three hundred and sixty days or more of the average year each individual has before him scores of avenues open to his thoughts or to his act he may turn wheresoever he will but in the supreme moments of his life with brief time for hesitation granted him he may be forced to do one of two things he must leap back or plunge forward to escape the destiny rushing down upon him like a speeding engine threatening him who has come to stand upon the crossing now virginia saw clearly that she must submit to norton's mastery and remain silent in the king's palace or she must seek to escape and tell what she knew or was there a remaining alternative if so it must present itself as clearly as the others action was stripped down to essentials bared to its component elements true vision must necessarily result since no side issues cluttered the view she sat upon the saddle blanket upon the rock floor of the main chamber of the series of ancient dwelling rooms staring at the fire which norton had built against the wall where it might not be seen from without the horses were in the meadow down by the stream she and norton had tethered them among the trees where they were fairly free from the chance of being seen norton was coming up mounting the deep-worn steps of the cliffside he had gone for water he had not been out of sight nor away five minutes and yet when she looked up to see him coming through the irregular doorway she had decided she saw him both the man and the gentleman her anger had died down long ago smothered in the ashes of her distress now she summoned to the fore all that she might in extenuation of what he did she did not blame him for the crimes which she knew he had committed because she was so confident that the chief crime of all had been the act resulting from caleb patton's abysmal ignorance nor now could she blame norton that embarked upon this flood of his life he saw himself forced to make her his prisoner for a few hours it was a man's birthright to protect himself to guard his freedom and her heart gave him high praise that toward her he acted with all deference that with things as they were while he was man enough to hold her here he was too much the gentleman to make love to her would she have resisted would she have posed calm argument against a hot avowal she did not know virginia he said gravely as he slumped down upon the far side of the fire i feel a brute but yes she had decided fully decided whether if be for better or for worse now she surprised him with one of her quick bright friendly smiles while she interrupted let us make the best of a bad situation she said swiftly i am not unhappy right now i have no wish to run halfway to meet any unhappiness which may be coming our way you are not the brute toward me what you do i do not so much as censure you for i am not going to quarrel with you were i in your boots i imagine i'd do just exactly as you are doing i hope i'd be as nice about it too and now before we drop the subject for good and all let me say this no matter what i do should it even be the betraying you into the hands of your enemies to put it quite tragically i want you to know that i wish you well and that is why i do it can you understand me yes he said slowly it's sweet of you virginia if you got my gun and shot my head off i don't know who should blame you i shouldn't 
he concluded with a forced attempt to match her smile. Then we understand each other. As long as each does the best he can, see his way to do, the other finds no fault. And when he nodded, she rose quickly and came to him, putting out her hand as he rose. Rod Norton, she said simply, and her eyes shone steady and clear into his. I wish you the best there is. I think we should both pray a little to God to help us tonight. And now, if you will, run up to your treasure chamber and bring down the coffee. I promise. I'll be here when you get back, and to make you a good hot drink, I feel the need of it, and so do you. He went out without an answer, his face grave and troubled again. As her eyes followed him, they were no longer gray, but wistful, and then filled with a sadness which she had not shown to him, and then suddenly wet. But before he had gone half a dozen steps from the door, she dashed a hasty hand across her eyes, and went swiftly to the smallest of the three black leather cases he had brought up here after her. This is one way out, Rod Norton, she whispered. The one way out if God is with us. Her quick fingers sought and found the tiny fail with its small white tablets labeled hyacinth and secreted in her bosom. She was laying fresh twigs upon the blaze when he came back with a coffee pot, can of coffee, and a tin cup. She greeted him with another quick smile. He saw that her cheeks were flushed rosy, that there was subdued excitement in her eyes, and yet matters just as they were would sufficiently explain these phenomena, without causing him to quest further. He thought merely that he had never seen her so delightfully pretty. Virginia Page, he told her as his own eyes grew bright with the new light leaping up into them. Some day, shh, she commanded, her color deepened. Let us wait till the day comes. Now you just obey orders, lie there and smoke while I make the coffee. He wanted to wait on her, but... When she insisted, he withdrew to the wall a few feet away and sat down, filled his pipe, and watched her, and while he filled his eyes with her, he marveled afresh, for it seemed to him that her mood was one of unqualified happiness. She did all of the talking, her words came in a ceaseless, bright flow. She laughed readily and often, her eyes were dancing, the warm color stood high in her cheeks, that her heart was beating like mad, that the intoxication of an intent he could not read had swept into her brain that she was vastly more in the mood to weep than to smile. All of this lay hidden for him behind her woman's wit, for having decided there would be no going back. With the coffee boiling in the old black and spotless pot from Norton's cache, in the treasure chamber she poured what was left of the ground coffee from its tin to the flat surface of a bit of stone. This tin was to serve Norton as his cup. This to be her nightcap. She laughed at him as she put the improvised cup by the other. I refuse to sit up any later, a saddle blanket for a bunk, and then to sleep. That is my room yonder, isn't it? She nodded toward the blank entrance of the second of the chambers of the king's palace. And you will sleep here. Well, while the coffee cools, I'm going to make my bed. She carried her blanket on past him, was gone into the yawning darkness, was back in a moment. My bed's ready she told him gaily. This kind of housekeeping just suits me. Now for the coffee. Rod Norton, will you do as you are told or not? You are to sit still and let me wait on you. Whose hostess here? I'd like to know. While out of his sight she had slipped one of the hyoscine tablets into her palm. Now, as she poured the ink-black beverage, she let it drop into the tin can, which she presented to Norton. Don't say it doesn't taste right, she admonished him in a voice in which 
At last he detected the nervous note. He stood up, holding his coffee can in his hand, meeting her strained levity with deep gravity. Virginia, he began. It's too late to cut in on my monologue, she cried gaily. Pledge me in the drink I have made for you, Mr. Norton. Just say, Virginia, here's looking at you. Or I wish you well in all you undertake, or for all that you have said to me, or whatever you may say or do in the future. I forgive you. That's all. Virginia, he said gently, I love you, my dear. She laughed nervously. That's the nice way to say everything all at once. He saw that her hand shook, that a little of her coffee spilled, and that again she grew steady. Now or night, Cap, and good night. She drank hurriedly. Thereafter she yawned and made her little pretense of increased drowsiness. Eh, it's been such a long day, she said. You'll forgive me if I tumble right straight into my sleepy land? Again they said good night, and she left him, going down among the eerie dancing shadows to her own quarter, drawing his moody eyes after her. When she had gone, he threw down his own blanket across the main entrance of the king's palace, filled his pipe again, and sat staring out into the night. The fire cast up its red flare spasmodically, licked at the last of the dead branches which, rolling apart, burned out upon the rock floor. The darkness once more blotted out all details saving the few smoldering coals, the knobs of stone and the small flickering circles of light, the quiet form of the man silhouetted against the lesser dark of the night without, Virginia, rigid and motionless, at the spot to which she had stolen noiselessly, watched him breathlessly. For only a little he sat smoking, then, as though he experienced something of the weariness of which she had made a pretense, he laid his pipe aside and stretched out upon his blanket. Leaning upon an elbow, she heard him sigh, vaguely made out when he let his head slip down upon an arm, saw that he had grown still and was lying stretched out across the main threshold. Now she must stand motionless while every fiber of her being demanded action. Now she must curve impetuosity to the call of caution. As the seconds passed, all but insupportable in their tedious slowness, she stood rigid and tense, waiting. But soon she knew that the drug had had its will with him, that he was steeped in deep sleep, that no longer must she wait, that now at length she might act. Carrying her saddle-blanket, she came to him and stood quietly looking down upon his upturned face. At last she could let the tears burst into her eyes unchecked. Now she could suddenly go down on her knees beside him, for an instant laying her cheek lightly against his, in the first caress. Would it be the last? He stirred a little and sighed again. She drew back, still upon her knees, again breathlessly rigid. But his stupor clung heavily to him, and she knew that it would hold him thus for hours. A score of burning questions, clamoring in her mind, she disposed of briefly, since time was of the essence. If I let you have your way, Rod Norton, she whispered, you will go on from crime to tragedy. If I hand you over to the law, I will be betraying you for no end, for your type of man finds a way to break jail, and so force his own hand of further violence. There is the one way out, and God help me to succeed. God forgive me if I fail. She stole by him and stepped upon the outer ledge. She was leaving him helpless. The thought presented itself that she would have another thing to answer for if one of the many men with such cause to hate him should come upon him thus. Well, 
That was but one of the more remote chances she must take. There was scant enough likelihood that anyone should come here before she could race into Las Australis and back. Then it was that she saw Patton. She did not know at first that it was Patton, but just that within a few feet of her upon the ledge which she must travel to the steps a man was standing, his body jerking back, pressed against the rocks as he saw her. She drew back swiftly, her blood in riotous tumult. But now, above aught else, the one thought in her mind was that there was no time for loitering, that the dawn would come to all soon, that there must be no delay. She stooped quickly and drew from its holster Norton's heavy revolver. Her saddle blanket over her left arm, the gun gripped in her right hand. She was once more upon the ledge, moving cautiously towards the figure, seen a moment ago, gone now. That it was Patton, she knew only when she had gone down the steps and had overtaken him there. Retreating thus far, reassured when he had made out that it was the girl alone, he waited for her, and as she demanded nervously, Who is it? It was Patton's disagreeable laugh which answered her. Oh, he jeered at her, this is the sort of thing you do when you are supposed to be out on a case all night. Patton here had God sent him, or the devil. His insult she passed over. She was not thinking of herself right now, of convention, of wagging tongues. She was just seeking to understand how this latest incident might simplify or make more complex her problem. I've had my suspicions all along, he laughed evilly. Tonight I followed and made sure, and now my fine little white dove, what have you to say for yourself? Might she use Patton? She was but now on her way to Las Estrellas for aid. She would operate herself. She would take up that upon herself, with no more regard for ethics than for Patton's gossiping tongue. She believed that she could do it successfully. At the least, she must make the attempt, though Norton died under her hand. The right. She had the right. The right because she loved him, because he loved her, because this whole future was at stake. But she must have assistance, so that she submit him to no needless danger, so that she give him every chance under such circumstances as these. She would have brought a man from Las Australis. She would have let him think what pleased him just saying that Norton had met with an accident, that an operation was necessary. And now Patton was here. Could she use him? You followed us, she said, gaining time for her thoughts. Yes, I followed you. I saw you come here. I watched while he unsaddled how he came up to you. What I could not see through the rock walls, I could guess. And now... Well, now, she repeated after him, so that Patton must have marveled at her lack of emotion. Now what? Now, he spat at her venomously, I think I have found the fact to shut Roderick Norton's blabbing mouth for him. I don't understand. You don't. You mean that he hasn't done any talking to you about me? Oh, and now she suddenly did understand. You mean how you are not Calipatton at all but Charles? How you are no physician but liable to prosecution for illegal practicing? She could use him or she could not. That was what she was thinking, over and over. "'Where is he?' demanded Patton, a little suspiciously. "'What is he doing? What are you doing out here alone?' "'He's asleep,' she told him. Patton laughed again. "'Your little parties are growing commonplace, then.' "'Charles Patton,' she cut in coldly. "'I have stood enough of your insult. Be still a moment and let me think. 
He stared at her for but a little, his own mind busy but silent. Could she make use of this blind instrument which fate had thrust into her hands? She began to believe that she could. Charles Patton, she went on, a new vigor in her tone, Mr. Norton knows enough concerning you to make you a deal of trouble. Just how long a term in the state prison he can get for you, I don't know, but... Haven't I found a way to shut his mouth? he said sharply. I think not. Before your slanders could travel far, we could have found Father Jose and have been married. But let me finish. You have practiced here for upward of two years, haven't you? You've made money. You have a ranch of your own. That is one thing to keep in mind. The other is that more than one of your patients have died. I believe, Charles Patton, that it would be a simple matter to have the district attorney convict you of murder. That's the second thing to remember. Patton shifted uneasily. Then she knew that it had been God who had sent him. When he sought to bluster, she cut him short. In the morning, as soon as there is light enough, she said, wondering at her own calmness, I am going to perform a capital operation upon Mr. Norton. It will be without his knowledge and consent. If he lives, and you will give up your practice and retire to your ranch or what business pleases you, I will guarantee that he does not prosecute you for what has passed. If he dies... If he dies, he snatched the word from her, it will be murder. You would be free from prosecution, she continued, quite as though he had made no interruption. I rather imagine that I should die too, and, as you say, I would be liable for murder. He is asleep now because I've drugged him. I shall chloroform him before he wakes. I should have no defense in the law courts. Yes, it would be murder. He drew a step back from her, as though from one suddenly gone mad. What are you operating for? he demanded. For your blunder, she said simply, and you are going to help me. I am, he jeered. Not by a damn sight, if you think I am going to let myself in for that sort of thing. Until now he had not seen the gun in her hand. Her quick gesture showed it to him. Charles Patton, she told him emphatically, I am risking Mr. Norton's life. I am therefore risking my own. Understand what that means? Understand just what you have got to win or lose by tonight's work? Consider that I pledge you my word not to implicate you in what you do that if worse came to worse, you could claim, and I would admit, that you were forced at the point of a gun to do as I told you. Oh, I can shoot straight, and finally I will shoot straight as God watches me rather than let you go now and stop what I have undertaken. Think of it well, Charles Patton. Patton, being as weak of mind as he was pudgy of hand, having besides that peculiar form of craft which is vouchsafed his type, furthermore, more or less of a coward, saw matters quite as Virginia wished him. Together they awaited the coming of dawn, the girl realizing to the uttermost what lay before her, forced herself to rest, lying still under the scars, schooling herself to the steady nerved action which was to have its supreme test. Just before dawn they had coffee and a bite to eat from Norton's little pack. Close to the drugged man they built a rude low table by dragging the squared blocks of fallen stone from their place by the wall. Upon this Virginia placed the saddle-blankets, neatly folded. Already Patton was showing signs of nervousness. Looking into her face, he saw that it was white and drawn, but very calm. Patton was asking himself countless questions, many of them impossible of answer yet. 
She was closing her mind to everything but the one supreme matter. He helped her give the chloroform when she told him that there was sufficient light and that she was ready. He brought water, placed instruments, stood by to do what she told him. His nervousness had grown into fear. He started now and then, jerking about guiltily, as though he foresaw an interruption. Together they got Norton's inert form upon the folded blankets. Patton's hands shook a little. He asked for a sip of brandy from her flask. She granted it. And while Patton drank, she cut away the hair from the unconscious man's scalp. Long ago her fingers had made their examination, were assured that her diagnosis was correct. Her hands were as untrembling as the steel of her knife. She made the first incision, drawing back the flap of skin and flesh, revealing the bone of the skull. It was forty-five minutes she worked, her hands swift, sure, capable, unerring. It was done. She was right. The under-table of the skull had been fractured. There was the bone pressure upon the underlying area of brain tissue. She had removed the pressure, and with any true pathological cause of the theft impulse. She drew a bandage about the sleeping eyes. She made Patton bring his own saddle-blanket. It was fixed across the entrance of the anteroom of the King's Palace, darkening it. Then she went to the ledge just outside and stood there, staring with wide eyes across the little meadow with its flowers and birds and water, down the slope of the mountain to the miles of desert. She had now but to await the awakening. End of chapter 21